It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. In late July, we had a very special gathering of Ellerslie alumni here in Windsor, Colorado. The week that they were here was filled with pithy and poignant reminders about the Christian life. You know, that version that is all in, fully given and abandoned to God. Hey, this is Eric. I have to admit, it was really, really special seeing friendly, familiar faces on our campus again. Boy, did I miss it. This week spent with the students was truly magnificent and precious. And since I'm traveling with the family over these next two weeks and won't be able to be present and live in the chapel for our Daily Thunder broadcast during that time, I'm going to take a short hiatus for my World War II series, which I will pick up upon my return. And I'd like to share recordings of five of the messages that I delivered during this powerful week with the alumni. I hope that you'll be encouraged by these living truths just like I was. If you have a desire to be discipled this year, please go to ellersley.com forward slash daily and look at the training options that are still available in 2020. And please don't let the finances stand in the way of you applying. We have scholarships. So follow what the Holy Spirit may be nudging you to do and trust that he will make a way. And now, without further ado, a bit of thunder. Uh, A stigma is a is a negative thing in our culture. If we use the word, it's, it's, a, it's a mark, but it's a negative mark. And if you're stigmatized, that means you're a cast-off. And it's interesting because, was it yesterday morning I gave the Daily Thunder, it was called the Order of the White Feather. You've received the white feather. You have received the stigma. And uh, you're a cast-off. You're a rejected one. This message could easily be called the fool because... In a sense, that's what we are choosing to climb into. There's like different outfits sitting sitting in front of us. And uh, whichever outfit we choose to wear is going to define how we're going to be perceived. And so to deliberately come up to an outfit that has the fool all over it. And we know that this generation in which we live will hold it in contempt. We don't have a natural bent towards that. We have a natural bent to put on the cool outfit, the outfit that would be hip, the outfit that would be stylish to the world, that they would applaud us. And this is the great challenge at the very core of what we're talking about this week, which is basically, if we're going to break it down, it's revival for the church of Jesus Christ. That's what we're after. But there's something right here in this kernel of fear, reticence, we want what the world has, and so oftentimes we're holding on to it, and God says, I want to give you all that I have. We're like, God, could you give me all that you have? But we are holding on to the world, and we have to let go of the world, but very specifically, we have to let go of the world's good opinion. And for those of us that have an extra special dose of social sensitivity, like I do, have you ever been around people that have no social concept and they just sort of do things that, yeah, you would do that if you didn't know you were around people. Uh, and they just do it. They don't seem to have the same radar, the same sensors built in to be able to read an audience and to say, that's actually very inappropriate right now. I think you've offended someone. They don't pick it up. Whereas for me, I pick up 
you know, multiple layers deeper than most people. It's like I'm sensitized when I'm in front of an audience. I can almost tell you what you're thinking. I know that sounds hauntingly weird, uh, but that's a, whether it's a spiritual gift or a natural gift, I don't know, but I've had that my whole life. I know when people are offended and you know how hard that is to preach boldly when you know that you're already past the line and you know that people don't even want to hear you. I know when someone's been dragged there, I can sense it. And so for me to boldly speak to their soul is a deliberate denial of a certain part of how I function. It's like, God, I don't know if that's a gift (laughs) because it's probably the number one reason why I wouldn't do what I do. But at the same time, it's something that I need to choose to deny so that I can say yes to what God wants to do in and through my life. And as a result, each of us has this dynamic that is going on inside of us that we need to make a choice on. The reason we moved Nathan earlier today is we felt like what we wanted to do was end earlier in our time to create space, if God wants to use it, for us to exercise at some level, whether that's just on our face, whether that's singing a song, whether that's just ending early. We don't have an agenda at all. And this is not the message I was going to give, obviously, since you don't have the notes for it. Sorry about that. But let's go into this. Before we do, I want to just set it in God's hands as a deliberate act uh, of consecration to say this is his time. And even if he wants me to start the message and then I stop and I go, this isn't what God wants to say. Here's what God wants to say. I just want to be malleable right now. Father, this is your time. We are your people. Lord, we don't want to waste a moment of it. This is so precious to be together as the body, to stand together, to amen together. Lord, I pray that you would utilize every moment to the max. Holy Spirit, take us as individuals and as a corporate body and work through us. Express who you are through us and to us. Lord, where you want to take us this morning, take us there, please. It's in the precious name of Jesus Christ that we ask this. Amen. All right, so we have old school Ellerslie keynote up there. Uh, This is the 2015 edition. We didn't do anything. uh, Well, we did delete the church at Ellerslie and the date on it. So we did do that. So so we've we've sanitized this a bit, and I took out two slides. You'll never know what two slides those were. (laughs) So this is a study in the requisite foolishness of following Christ. Isn't that an awkward way to start out a message? The requisite foolishness. You want to follow Christ? You need to deliberately choose what will be foolish in the world's eyes. We fight this tooth and nail. We have a social sensitivity. We want to look good to the world. Can we have our Christianity and at the same time be cool? Can't we do that? Well, there's the great failure of the modern church right there. We are trying to fit in, and which is why this proving ground, this COVID-19 season is exposing that fact. You have so many church leaders that are going silent because they know if they speak, they show that they're against the culture right now. And you don't want to show that you're against the cultural flows. I mean, this is, there's a hipness out there. You know what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to, you know, do what Starbucks is doing. 
you know, I drive by, uh, and of course everyone has their masks on, and now they're all the same masks. They're all black, and they have all black shirts, and on the back it says Black Lives Matter. And we all know that black lives do matter. However, the core of that organization is not godly. It is very ungodly. It is very anti-Christ. It is anti, it, it has racial issues all over the place. And it is anti-normal sexuality. It is everything that would be opposite of Eric Ludi except for its title. Because I love black lives. But I don't love that organization. But if you are cool and in stride with the culture, you would dress like they're dressing right now. So you see the tensions. I know every single person in that Starbucks. They know me. How do I handle them? And do, do I wear my own Black Lives Matter t-shirt as I drive through and go, see, I'm with you. And so how do we do this as Christians right here, right now? I am going to be buck-toothed to this world. I already know that. I've accepted that. And yet sometimes you need to rehearse your acceptance of something. That's why I use the word afresh a lot. Yeah, I think we all need to come to the place afresh. That we are the fool in this generation. In heaven, we're wise. Down here, we're a fool. In heaven, the down here's are idiots in heaven. They are. In heaven's eyes, this behavior is absolute lunacy. But down here, it looks very, very cool. Stigma, a mark pricked in or branded upon the body. To ancient oriental usage, slaves and soldiers bore the name or the stamp of their master or commander branded or pricked, cut, into their bodies to indicate what master or general they belonged to. So this is going to be a word. I mean, this is an extreme word, right? I mean, like a brand, like a cattle brand on cattle. How do you know whose ranch that, what cat, that cow goes to? Well, you can just tell by the brand. And this is going to be a key theme throughout the New Testament. And you're going to see in the book of Revelation that there is a brand of the enemy, too, upon the people. And this brand is something that, you know, we get the eebie-jeebies over, you know, as we're growing up. We're like, oh, I don't like talking about that. And yet... This is a part of what is the basis of Christianity. You in, you out. Who are you standing with? Are you with the world or are you with Christ? You choose. So the brand name, isn't that interesting that we have that term? Now, most of us don't think about it any more than we think about Broadway uh, in New York City. You know, you just grow up thinking, you know, hearing Broadway, but, you know, if it was called Narrow Way, it would, you know, it would probably stand out a little, Right. But it's called Broadway. Isn't that fascinating? And that's a dangerous place in Scripture. <laughs> and the same is true with a brand name. And, you know, we're going to, you know, pitch our brand. Now, I get it. I understand marketing. It's not that I'm ignorant of, of what this is about. And I'm sure that all of us that would use the term don't mean something, you know, evil uh, with it. But it's fascinating that we have this idea of a brand. And so my question is, if we're going to have a brand... You know, because we're going to identify with a brand. You know how we like to wear brands? And a certain brand, like when I was in elementary school, we had this girl that wore her uh, collar up. And she was the preppy. Okay, that was the term. I don't know what, what it is now. But she was the preppy. And there were certain uh, clothes that she knew. She was like the fashionista of elementary school. And she would make fun of my clothes. So, excuse me. 
and she would tell me what was wrong with my outfit. I mean, she would. I mean, it was weird. I don't think I was the only target, but she would do this. And so the, the brand at the time that was what you wanted to be wearing was Izod. Okay, that was what, so the little alligator there. That was the preppy brand. And so I, I did get some Izod shirts, and she started to lay off uh, on, her, uh, uh, on her indictment of Eric Ludi's fashion flaws. And yet it's interesting because when you are in school, you become very aware of brands. You become very aware of that if you wear this, you look buck-toothed. If you wear this, you look hip. And so my mom bought me jeans from Sears. Oh, mom! (laughs) They were less expensive, okay? She got a good deal on these, but they were tough skins. Have you ever heard of tough skins? Yeah, look, did you buy tough skins for your kids or did you wear tough skins? Oh, boy, those, I bet they made you popular too, Sal, right? They... They had a patch, a patch, right? Below the knee, right? It makes sense to have it on the knee, but it's below the knee. It's like over the shin. The, the, the junkiest pair of jeans ever, right? And guess who? I, I wore tough skins to school, and this girl ate me for lunch. And I got so sensitized to brands because of that. All growing up, I did not want to repeat that where Jill, I won't give her last name because she's probably some famous person out there, I don't know. But Jill, Jill was like this voice in my life all growing up. And I could feel it. If you've ever gone through that shame of wearing the wrong clothing, it stands out to you, it really does. Which mark do you bear? So there's three marks that we could describe in scripture, okay? The beast, the mark of the beast, as it's oftentimes known. And the beast is determined to destroy the word of God. So you'll see this all throughout history, that there is a, an attitude, we'll call it the Antichrist. It is that which is opposite Jesus. It is the devil, yes, but it animates itself in this earth. And it wants to quell the word of God. It wants to snuff out the text. It wants to snuff out the man. And it wants to snuff out what he did on that cross. Ultimately, then, it wants to snuff out its representation in the church of Jesus Christ. So this is a mark. Now, I'm guessing, just off the cuff, that none of us wants this mark. We don't actually have any attraction to this. We want to promote the word of God. We don't want to stand against it, right? So the likelihood, I mean, I remember growing up and being fearful of actually accidentally getting this mark. Because if you, if you remember all the end time stuff that was swirling around in our younger years, like in the seventies, I mean, this was like, did I, did I take the mark? If I got a credit card, do I have the mark? You know, all these things, it was weird stuff. And all these end times things were floating around. And so long and short, this is, it's important to recognize that as a Christian, you are choosing to wear something. So when I say, what is your position? You're actually answering with a mark. I am marked by Christ. I am clothed in his shed blood. I wear the insignia of his discipleship, which is love for the brethren. In other words, we are wearing something. But there is sort of this in-between zone that, okay, I don't want the mark of the beast, but I don't want the obscurity and the foolishness and the bucktoothness of Jesus Christ. I want the middle ground. Okay, I want the cool territory. I don't want to be, uh, you know, hot or cold. I want to be lukewarm. 
I want to be hip. I want to stay in Adam's outfit. And so Adam would be a great illustration of that old life that isn't necessarily hostile to God. It's just not pro-God. It wants to stay neutral, which is where I see a lot of Christians right now hanging out. They don't want, I mean, they don't, they're not promoting riots. They're not promoting this cancel culture. They're not promoting, you know, shut down churches. They're, they're just silent right now. While all this evil, it's the same thing that happened in World War II. You have a great evil that is swarming over Europe that is actually taking the Jews and killing them. I mean, what? It's taking peasants. It's taking disabled and disfigured people and killing them. It is taking certain people groups, ethnicities, or whether it's political persuasions and killing them. I mean, am I the only one that thinks this is wrong? That's the way that probably a lot of Christians were thinking back then because no one was standing up. It was incorrect to say anything. And so as a result, you sought and you disagreed with it, but you stayed lukewarm in your position. You stayed in an Adam costume, lest you be deemed the warmonger or the hate monger, which was what the extreme terms were for standing against Hitler at the time, because that would mean war. And everyone knows that we just went through World War I 20 years ago, and we do not want war. So we're not those warmongers. We're not a hate monger. We just are going to let Germany do what Germany does. Well, what if what Germany does fills the whole earth? Are we still not going to care what Germany does? So Adam is the hip, cool, favorable in the eyes of the world. And then we have the mark of Christ. It's a stigma. It's establishing the kingdom and the glory of the beloved son. So if you wear that mark, you're wearing a very specific agenda. Right now, we're ashamed of our agenda. It's like, uh, we, we, don't, we want to hide it almost. It's like, actually, I am standing for something in this generation. And that is to see you change your mind. <laughs> I want to see you take off that shirt and wear Christ. You're not supposed to say that. Shh. Because we as Christians are passive. We're supposed to just believe what we believe and let the world do whatever they do. But at the same time, we as believers are supposed to wear a mark. We're supposed to be obviously set on an agenda of changing this world for the king. That every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's my agenda. You have an agenda? Yes, I do. Sounds terrible to have an agenda, doesn't it? Everyone has an agenda. All the other agendas are being laid out uh, clearly right now. I think the church should lay out its agenda. All right, we have an agenda too. And that's to see you repent and come into the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you straight up, that's my end game here. So the authentic and the counterfeit. Matthew 7, 20 through 23. By their fruits you shall know them. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. By their fruits you will know them. It's by their actions. By that which is coming out of their life. You'll be able to see what they're wearing. You'll see what mark they bear. But he that does the will of my Father. There is a doing that seems to matter. You remember the sheep and the goats? If I were to say, what is the difference in the sheep and the goats? I mean, they, they look a little different. A goat is different if you were to look at them. Yeah, they, but 
there's, they both sound similar. <laughs> What's the difference? The sheep do something. The goats do not. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. They are doing something, but they're working iniquity. They are not doing that which the Spirit of God desires to do in the world. They are doing that which Adam would do. Maybe not even what the beast would do. (laughs) They're doing that which Adam would do. Self-preserving. They're working iniquity. As opposed to doing the work of the king. The twos. Have I ever mentioned the twos to you guys? The sheep and the goats. And before him shall be gathered all the nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Wheat and tares. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather ye together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. The separation out of the two. Of course, we have a lot more illustrations of that in Scripture. But what we see captured in this, just like we see in the ten virgins, we see a separation out of five over here and five over here. There is an obvious signal to us that you can appear to be similar, to be like, but then in the end it will be defined as being clearly opposite. The words, I never knew you, I'd say rank up there out of the entire landscape of Scripture as being the most terrifying words in the Bible. And, you know, that's an arguable point if we were to go through it and say, well, this one's pretty challenging too. But it's a very, very personal thing to me whenever I read that. It's hard for me to just step back and say, well, that's everyone else. I've got it all figured out. Because the scripture is so sharp in how it's communicating that they know his name. They know to call him Lord. They seem to have a personal connection at some level, don't they? You see, we know the jargon. We know what it's like to be in the kingdom of heaven. We know the the feel and the culture. I don't want to be locked out. I desire to be the authentic version of Christianity. Oh, Lord Jesus, search me. If there be any falsehood in this life, purge it out. I don't want to con myself into thinking that I am living as a sheep when I'm living as a goat. I don't want to con myself into thinking that I'm a wheat instead of a tear. Lord Jesus, if there's any terishness, goatishness in me, if I have an empty lamp, please tell me now. I want to go and get that oil. This is the tremble in the healthiest way in the body of Christ to alert us afresh to say, God, sharpen me. If you keep using a pencil, it gets dull. And what do you need to do? You need to go and periodically just sharpen it back up. That's what this week has been for us. We are that pencil and we need to be sharpened afresh. We need to be reminded of what matters most because this world is not reminding us of it and right now the church is quiet. So as a result, we need to rally around the word of God afresh. The fellowship of the burning heart. So that's a historic description and title. One of my favorites for describing the sort of Christianity that we esteem in a spouse here. 
When we rally together, well, we desire to be the fellowship of the burning heart. That's what we desire. We we all recognize that we are a flimsy representation of this grand picture, but we don't just esteem it. I think all of us are here. if, If I were to say, would you be willing to take a bold step forward in your faith this week? And I would give you a, you know, a piece of paper and then you sign yes or no. I have a hunch, just a hunch, that we would probably get 100% return with a yes. In other words, we're desirous to move forward. We're desirous for more. The Fellowship of the Burning Heart. The term, I don't remember who introduced me, if it was Oswald Chambers, because I think he used it. I think A.W. Tozier has used the term. So it's a, it's a, it's a term that at least is spread around. It would be that those that like the Keswick Convention of old. It's this gathering of believers that are ready to die for Jesus anywhere in the world. Send me, Lord. And then they all are standing together. They're praying together. It's like, oh, that's, that's what was the original vision of Allersley would be a gathering of the fellowship of the burning heart. So I have a subtitle to this, a sacred league of lion-hearted lambs with pierced sides. That's what we are. We're, if... If you look at Jesus, he is a pierced lamb. We recognize that wounds come with our job description. And we will look weak. A sheep, as far as a basic description, is a weak critter. He doesn't, you don't think of strength when you think of sheep. And so we are likened unto sheep. That's what we will appear in this world. We will appear as sheep. We will look weak. However, these sheep have a shepherd. And so though we choose a dependent and weak costume to get into, it's just like, I'd like to get in that lion costume over here. And that looks really good. And God says, this is the one I want you to wear. We're like, next, is there, is there another one in the outfit? No, this is the, there's like a whole bunch of sheep outfits. It's like, what is this? This is the outfit for the kingdom of heaven here on this earth. Do you want to get into your sheep costume, Eric? And you see, sheep are food, which is why the shepherd is needed. They are hunted by wild beasts. So that works out well with the mark of the beast. Mark of the beasts. You see, that's our job. Burning for Christ or cool to this world. Which one? The idea of cool. See, we want to be cool to this world. We want to look cool to this world. It's a weird instinct inside of us. Every one of us, if I were to set it out there, is like, all right, being cool to this world, I'm going to put a whole bunch of flyers out in the middle of how you can get it done. And if you guys want to take one, we'll all be watching. We have a camera on it to see who goes to the middle and takes one of those. Well, for multiple reasons, we wouldn't go because we wouldn't want to look bad to the rest of us that we actually are interested in being cool to this world because we know in here that's frowned upon, right? But the other thing is, even if no one was watching, we just left it there and left you in this room all by yourself. You don't care about that. You don't want to be cool to this world. You just have a propulsion naturally in that. You don't need to be encouraged in it. You already have it. It is something that is baked into our atom wiring, which is why we must negate it. We must deliberately choose to go against it. We must turn it off. Or if it's like a bomb, it's like going 10, 9, 8, 7, you know, and you have your little cutters. You're like, click, 
You're cutting it so that it cannot have any impact upon your life. You are deliberately choosing to disengage from it. The idea of cool. It's very fascinating that we use that word, cool. Because cool is a temperature between hot and cold. It is not ardent or zealous. It's not angry. It's not fond. It's not excited by passion of any kind. It is indifferent, not retaining heat or light. To cool means to become less hot, to lose heat, to lose the heat of excitement or passion, to become less ardent, angry, zealous, or affectionate, to become more moderate. Revelation three fifteen through 16, just in case you were pondering this morning, becoming cool. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are cool, okay, lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. All right, that's a pretty extreme statement on cool. Oh, there it is. Because you are cool, you are neither cold nor hot. I will vomit you out of my mouth. The Eric rendition. Because you are cool. There it is again. Just in case you're missing this, I have this three times. I will vomit you out of my mouth. <clears throat> the art of branding. So if you're branding a product, there's a very specific mindset you have. Convincing the world that you are part of the cool culture. So if you are going to effectively brand, you're going to study the culture and you're going to figure out how you can best relate to it. So this culture will say, I want to either wear that. I want to think that. I want to smoke that. I want to go to that destination. You're trying to sell a product. And so the art of branding is, I mean, if you choose to sell your product by branding as Christ, boy, I mean, that, come on, guys. Eesh. That's, that's not going to be the best way to, you know, to prosper in this world. So you need to convince the world that you are part of the cool culture. You understand the cool, you drive the cool, you smoke the cool, you drink the cool, you listen to the cool, you spend your Friday nights at the cool, and you know the language of the cool. There's, there's language for the cool. There are certain words that the cool people use. And I've gotten disconnected from that to the point where I honestly have no clue what the cool words are anymore. I mean, it's a scary thought, right? But I can't even accidentally use it, like throw them into the conversation to sort of let them know that I'm up to speed culturally. I can't even do that anymore. I mean, that's a sad state of affairs for poor Eric Ludi, isn't it? And yet there is a knowing about that. There is a, a, a student in each of us. Like when I was on the bus going to public school when I was growing up and I would hear a word used. I mean, I would file and hold on to it. It's like, what's that word mean? And then I have to figure out what that word means. So I'm listening for context of the use of that word. I'm trying to figure this out. Why? Because I recognize there's a language and I am holding on to it for dear life so that I can show this world that I fit into it. Weird propensity. Corporate rebranding. So I, I used to uh, talk about this a lot. I, I haven't talked about it for a long time, but this is a common thing where your old brand or your old market is either aging or it's not working anymore. And so you'll see these big corporations actually go through a rebranding process. So two of my favorite illustrations uh, took place, I think, in the, in the late 1990s. Uh, but you have Volkswagen and you have Cadillac. Volkswagen was the hippie mobile. And they went through a corporate rebranding where they are going to become hip. And they're going to become more mainstream. 
And it was a deliberate choice on their part to separate from their hippie past and to be in stride with the current culture. Cadillac, for those of us that remember, was like the old person's car. Okay, we, would make, we were starting to make fun of it. The jokes were starting to go towards Cadillac, you know, that they're the old person's car. Cadillac comes out of nowhere and rebrands itself. I mean, how in the world? I remember thinking, how did they become cool again? I mean, that is a, the Escalade. I mean, this is like a huge, you know, family mobile. And you're like, whoa, I'd love to have an Escalade. And you're thinking, did I just think that? Did I just say that? Because there was a cool vibe that surrounded it. That is fascinating to me. How you can take something and then re-deliver it, repackage it, but it was all based on cultural sensibilities. When a church begins to do that, just think about what can happen. You are altering, oftentimes, even the message of the church, the framework of the church. I remember when Baptist churches started removing Baptists from their titles. I mean, it was, it was a tactical maneuver, same time period. Everything was happening with rebranding back then. There was, must have been some book that came out like, rebranding your life. And so all these different churches were removing. So it would have been Calvary Baptist Church. Now it's Calvary Church. And it's like, why would you change your name? Well, <laughs> sort of hard to explain why Campus Crusade for Christ became crew. Which is far more cool. <laughs> I, I've joked about that for quite a, a long time. And, you know, okay, I get it. I understand why you're removing the cross from behind you when you preach. A whole bunch of churches have done that. Because it's sort of buck-toothed. It's, it's not what we want people to be thinking about when they're trying to hear about glowing truths and ideas about Christianity. You might want to remove that splintery cross from behind you. Isn't that interesting? A rebranding of the church. What does it lead to? It leads to right now, where we have spent so much of our marketing dollars and so much of our mental strength trying to adapt to the culture instead of change it. And as a result, when the, church, when the culture starts to go over a cliff, you sort of feel like we're going over with it. It's like, excuse me, I don't think we're supposed to be going in this direction. Too late. Here we go. So is it time for a rebranding of Jesus? After all, he is not a part of the cool culture. He doesn't talk cool, doesn't look cool, and doesn't live cool. He's outdated. He's outmoded, guys. This is literally what the emergent movement, the postmodernism, when it crept into evangelical Christianity, this is its agenda, was to re-image Christianity. It's actually what Rob Bell called it in Velvet Elvis. Re-imaging Christianity. We need to reset the system. This is buck-toothed. Hey, hey, get your grubby hands off of Christianity. Hey, don't mess with the word of truth. You see, we are the protectors, and we're, we're the ones that stand up and say, not on my watch. See, this is, this is battle lines right here. The brand of Jesus is a weird thought to think of a brand of Jesus, but he has one. In fact, the Greek in the New Testament is actually going to call it that. That Jesus has a brand. It's just who wants to wear it. You know, in the, in the, when you go through your clothes in the closet, this is the one, even when you instinctively look at it, you're going to know this isn't going to go over well. And so it's like, do we have something, you know, maybe the same color scheme, but a different brand? I mean, we, we don't want to wear that. It's like camel skin loincloth, 
You know, here, wear your hair out like this, like John the Baptist. Uh, here's some locust and wild honey for your lunch bag. It's like, ah. So here it is. I bear in my body the brand, the marks of the Lord Jesus. That's the stigma. Paul's saying, I'm wearing it, guys. Of course, what's he talking about? He's carrying in his actual body the fact that he has stood up for Christ. He has wounds all over his body. I mean, he received 39 stripes five times on his back. He's not going to look very good on a beach, guys, with his shirt off. That's, that's a mess, spaghetti-like mess on his back. This guy has gone through every physical trial. And if you look at his body and were to study it, you're going to think like, what happened to you, bud? I bear in my body the marks of Jesus Christ. You stand for Jesus. You wear him in this culture. You'll look a little like Paul. Ah. The fellowship of the burning heart. How will you recognize them? So I'm going to go through 30 defining attributes of those that bear the marks and don't live cool. So I'm just going to lift this out of scripture and we'll just enjoy the realities of what scripture says about those that wear the mark of Jesus. Number one, they are those who are armed with the same mind as Christ was armed, prepared to suffer in the body. First Peter four, one. They are those who do not consider it strange to encounter fiery trials. 1 Peter 4.12. They are those who rejoice for the privilege of sharing in Christ's sufferings. 1 Peter 4.13. They are those who are unashamed of the fact that they suffer for righteousness. 1 Peter 4.16. They are those who consider it the highest privilege to fill up in their bodies what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body. Colossians 1.24. Okay, we've only gone through five of the 30. The Bible is so replete with a very clear message on what you should expect when you stand for Christ in this world. I'm not exactly sure how in our mindsets, especially as Americans, we've done a reset on this. Where it's just like, well, that was then, but now we expect very different things. And there's our problem. We are catering to the world. We are kowtowing to the world instead of standing with the clothing of Christ. Number six, they are those who are immovable and undaunted in affliction, for they know that they are commissioned, even appointed to suffering, affliction, and tribulation. That's 1 Thessalonians 3, 2 through 4, and verse 12. Number seven, they are those who are troubled on every side, yet do not get distressed. Those who are perplexed, but do not despair. They're persecuted, but not forsaken. They're cast down, but not destroyed. Number eight, oh, that's 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 9. Number eight, They are those that are always bearing about in their body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in their body. That's 2 Corinthians 4.10. Number nine, they are those that yearn to share in the fellowship of his sufferings and desire to be conformed to his death. Philippians 3.10. Number 10, they are those who are not ashamed of the testimony of Jesus Christ, but are partakers of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. That's 2 Timothy 1.8. Number 11, they are those that know that all things, whether it be tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, or any other affliction, work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called, who are the called according to his purpose. That's Romans 8, 28. 
Number 12, they are those that accept with joy the fact that for Christ's sake they are killed all the day long, accounted as sheep for the slaughter. That's Romans 8, 35 through 36. Number 13, they are those that know that all afflictions and all trials shall turn to their salvation through prayer and through the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That's Philippians 1, 19. Number 14, they are those that are utterly confident that they shall not be ashamed for the confidence they have placed in Jesus Christ. And whether it is by life or by death, Christ shall be magnified in their body. That's Philippians 1.20. And number 15, there are those that know that to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's Philippians 1.21. Number 16, there are those that are gladly spent for the glory of God and faint not through the difficult trials, imprisonments, and the many afflictions. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 15 through 16. Number 17, there are those that are confident that as suffering and afflictions tear down and decompose their outward body, their inward man is renewed day by day. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Number 18, they are those that know that their current afflictions work for them a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 17. Number 19, they are those that, that if their earthly house, their body, were dissolved, that they have a building of God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. 2 Corinthians 5, 1. Number 20, they are those that will gladly spend their bodies and spill their blood because of love for Jesus Christ and for his body, the church. 2 Corinthians 12, 15. Number 21, they are those that rejoice and are exceeding glad when they are reviled, persecuted, and all manner of evil is spoken against them falsely for the sake of Jesus Christ. That's Matthew 5, 11 through 12. Number 22, they are those that rejoice that they are counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. That's Acts 5, 41. Number 23, they are those that are exceeding joyful in all their tribulation. That's 2 Corinthians 7, 4. Number 24, they are those that consider it pure joy when they face trials of many kinds. That's James 1, 2. Number 25, they are those that know that where the sufferings of Christ abound, so the consolation, comfort, and satisfaction of Christ abounds. That's 2 Corinthians 1, 5. Number 26, they are those whose hope is steadfast and whose endurance is strong enough, is strong, though they be pressed out of measure above their human strength to handle, insomuch that they despair even of life. That's 2 Corinthians 1, 6 through 8. Number 27, they are those whose boast is in their Christ, his sufferings, and the fact that they are privileged to share in the fellowship of those sufferings, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths often, with scourging, stoning, stripes, beatings, shipwrecks, perils, weakness, painfulness, watchings, hunger, thirst, fastings, cold, and nakedness. That's 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 27. Number 28, they are those that endure all things for Jesus Christ and for the sake of the elect. Number 29, they are those that do not consider the sufferings of this present time as worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in them. That's Romans 8, 18. And number 30, they are those that know it was fitting for Jesus to become perfect through suffering. And it is also fitting for them to be perfected in the same manner. Hebrews 2, 10. That's quite the list, guys. I feel like I just read the New Testament to you. That is the story of the saints throughout the ages. We represent a very odd part of history, this American experiment, where there has been a religious protection, where there has been a religious liberty, very unusual in history. And as a result, instead of serving us to the fullest extent of just making us bold gospel tears to go into all the nations out of this protective uh, casing, it has in many ways softened us to the point where we have an allergy towards difficulty. We 
repel sufferings as if they are wrong. And we consider it strange when we face trials of many kinds. Instead of considering it Christian to face trials of many kinds. This is what we do. We are experts in trials. You know that there's all sorts of experts. I I remember uh, Carter Conlon from uh, Times Square Church uh, in uh, New York. He gave a message right after 9-11 that was really powerful. It was called Run. And he was talking about all the people that were fleeing from the the towers that were, were coming down. And so they were running. And yet there was another group of people that were also running, but they were running in the opposite direction. And they were the rescue workers. And they were prepared, designed, in their mindsets, they knew what their job was. And so even though everyone else is running for their life, screaming that some terrible thing is happening, this is their opportunity. This is what they were trained for. This is their hour. Uh Uh-huh. So which way are we running? The fellowship of the burning heart run right into the smoldering building. I mean, look at every superhero, guys. Everyone else stands and gawks from a distance. The superhero goes in. We esteem it. We know that. That's the model of Christ. He comes into the burning building and rescues his bride. Now, what are we doing? Running from the building? He fills us with his very spirit. And he says, could I make these hands do what my hands would do if they were here? Could I make these feet go where my feet would take my body? Could I make this heart beat with my burdens? Could I make this mind think my thoughts? Could I make this tongue speak my words? This is Christianity. And yes, it is going to go against the grain. Haven't we been prepared for that? Haven't we studied Fox's Book of Martyrs? Haven't we read the history of the saints? Did we lose something in translation here? This has always been the church of Jesus Christ. May we not cower now. The pattern of the burning heart. 23 of the 30 above descriptions were given by one man, Paul the Apostle. Now the reason I bring that out is because Paul is going to say something that will silence a certain argument in our souls. Well, Paul was a special Christian. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that crazy line. Well, you know, you could say Jesus was a special man. Okay, what am I going to do? Argue that? You know, he was. He was God in the flesh. However, to silence that argument, God is going to call Paul. Just in case you were thinking that the Jesus life is just the Jesus life, and when the Holy Spirit was given, now it's just a whole bunch of burping and scratching people that are just going to go to heaven in the end, but we live the same as everyone else. No, what happens when Jesus Christ moves in via his Holy Spirit is he alters the way someone thinks and lives and behaves so that they think and live and behave completely different than the world around them. In fact, we could say, kind of like Paul. Paul is an example of what Christ will do in a man. So what is Paul going to say? First of all, we, we just heard the list, guys, and it's pretty pretty super heroic, you have to admit. I mean, it, we're, we all are impressed with it. We're just wondering if we should sign up for it. Could you imagine if I gave you all a sheet of paper and it had 30 checkboxes? It could have been a really good idea today. <laughs> it has 30 checkboxes, and it says check off and maybe initial, you know, make it formal, maybe even signature at the bottom with date, of which ones you are willing to agree to and to say amen to. Is this the word of God or not? 
Do, will you amen this and say, this is what I expect? I, yes, I accept this. I'm willing for this. God, train my mind. Train me to live according to this 30 points. Yes, they're intense. But this is, I'm just going to speak for myself. I can't speak for you. I love that list. What's wrong with Eric? I've been changed in my thinking from being a self-preserving fool to being one who esteems God's word. Though I note my cowardice, I despise it. And I desire boldness to increase in my life. I desire the full animation of that list in my life. I want to be counted amongst that fellowship. That is a work of grace. So whatever point you are in the journey, if your cowardice is noisy this morning and yelling inside of you, there is a deliberate thing that you must do to counter that. So listen to what Paul says. Remember our example? The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me. Yeah, Paul, uh, what are you going to say next? Okay, all of those things, because that's basically the New Testament, right? It's this whole pattern of Pauline living, which isn't that easy. These do, and the God of peace will be with you. I mean, I really want the God of peace to be with me. What do I need to do, Paul? Well, you know all the things that you've heard me teach? You know all the things you've heard me or watched me do? You know all those things about standing for Christ, suffering well, singing in prison cells? You know all that? Do that. And the God of peace will be with you. Nope. Can I get the God of peace easier than that? This is how we function as Christians. And we find the greatest fulfillment when we walk this way. So what else does he say? Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. As he says in 1 Corinthians 4.16. Brethren, join in following my example. And note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. That's Philippians 3.17. And then in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Hebrews 2.10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. That I, and in Philippians 3.10. That I may know the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. 1 Peter 4.1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Understanding suffering, climbing inside the body of Christ. So there's a word, uh, there's actually multiple words, like Paul is going to use the word in the Greek, idiotes, not a very attractive word because you can guess what it means. And of course, we're going to get fool as well. What does fool mean? An idiot, uh, this is just out of a thesaurus, I don't know which thesaurus to give it credit, but an idiot, blockhead, Dunce, dolt, ignoramus, imbecile, cretin, dullard, simpleton, moron, clod, nitwit, halfwit, dope, ninny, nincompoop, chump, dimwit, dingbat, dipstick, goober, coot, goon, dumbo, dummy, dum dum, fathead, numbskull, thick scu- thickhead, airhead, flake, lame brain, pea brain, bird brain, jughead, chowderhead, dumbhead, goofball, goof, goofus, doofus, galoot, lummox, knuckle dragger, meatball, or dumb cluck. I think we have enough words in there to go around, okay? I don't know which one you want to pick, but we each get one. 
We are fools for Christ's sake. For Christ's sake, we say yes. We have to, de- we have to declare in our inner man where we stand. So many of us are afraid of being that fool. But it's not the Spirit of God within you that's afraid of that. The Spirit of God within you is going to push you into territory that is going to go against the culture in which we live. So the Chrissy lesson, that's my sister. My sister uh, is just an amazing woman. She's always been an amazing girl, even when we were growing up. And she's one of the main reasons why I have gone after Jesus. She prayed for me every day. Uh, she would, I would come home from school, like on a summer break or something. And, uh, at that time you would like roll up your sleeve on your shirt and, you know, it just made you look cool. Right. So she'd come along, walk past me in the hall and knock my sleeve down and not say anything, just knock my sleeve down. I mean, she was like, did not like to see me going in the direction of the world. I mean, she, she had such a burden for my life. And even though I'm sure there's a better way of handling it than knocking down my sleeve, at least she was quiet about it, right? And, but I watched her in high school, and there was something I said when I first got to high school, which is very telling. And uh, one of my teachers said, you are not anything like your sister. And I go, thank you. I didn't want to be like my sister. My sister stood for Jesus in a public school system. My sister sat at the table. Get this. She sat at the table with the foreign students and the disabled kids for lunch. You've got to be kidding. And she was treated like one of them. And if if any of you went through public school system, you know what that can mean. And she would, she was okay with that somehow. I mean, I remember just looking there going, Chrissy, we called her the saint and it was a very mocking title for her. I did not want to be associated with my sister. Because my sister was associated with the weak. When in the, the yearbook, in the end, they elect, you know how you, you elect like the most comedic, the most, you know, whatever. I don't remember all the different things. She got elected for one of those, and it had to do with something like quiet, uh, like the quietest or something. I don't remember what it was. And I remember they took her out to a tree and tied her and put a gag in her mouth and put, took a picture of it and stuck it in the yearbook. And as her brother... I mean, you'd think I would be defensive of my sister. Instead, I was ashamed of my sister. Okay, so you can see what clothing I'm wearing at this season of my life. I want to look good. My sister prays for me every day. And if you know the story, she's going to give me a book for Christmas when I'm in my freshman year of college. I go to, and it's no compromise, the story of Keith Green. I'm going to read that book. The first person I call is my sister. And I say, Chrissy, uh, I did, she was quiet on the other end. Like, I gave my life to Jesus. All she did was cry. That was her response. The whole conversation was me saying those words and then her crying. She set an example for me that has been emblazoned upon my soul. The willingness to bear Christ and his stigma. The willingness to look bad in the yearbook. The willingness to do it a different way. And I tell you what, I was not attracted to it. But what's strange is when I came to Christ and I was radicalized by the spirit of God. If you could say it that way, I remember looking back at my sister and going, Whoa, that's a hero. I mean, Whoa, that's my sister. So the three options, you choose which one you will climb into and live out your high school years. The mean bully. Okay. That's, that's one of your options. There's mean bullies around, right? You got the cool kid and you got the Chrissy. 
Which one? You got the clothing coming along sort of in one of those dry cleaning racks. It's like moving through. Which one are you going to take off the rack? You see, I, I wanted the cool kid. I wanted the Adam, the middle of the road. I don't, I'm, I'm not going to be mean. I'm not going to be a bully, right? But I, I, don't, I don't want to be the obvious Christian. In front of the mocking crowds, uh, my, I, I've had multiple points in time where God has tested me in this. I remember one dream that I had where I was in this huge stadium and I was up on a stage and it was packed full of young ladies. And all the ladies looked at the stage at the same time and went, actually they said sick, but at the time sick meant bad. Okay. Now it, for whatever reason means cool. Uh, okay. That's weird. Uh, but they all yelled sick or like disgusting. And I woke up and it was like, I was horrified that a generation of young women would find me disgusting. I mean, I labored to be found attractive, and yet the test in my soul was, Eric, would you be willing to follow me, no matter what the cost? And that was a very real cost in my mind. It was like, whoa, oh God, oh, I, I, oh. So my sister once gave me the illustration of, okay, imagine Eric, Jesus is on his way up to Calvary. He's carrying the cross and he's walking up to the hill Golgotha and they're going to nail him in to the cross and they're going to hang him up there and he's just covered in blood. And then he's surrounded by mockers, scorners, revilers. And this is like socially, he is the outcast. He is the rejected. He is the criminal. And in that very moment, in that scene, would you be willing to walk up in front of all the crowd, turn around, in front of the cross, point your hand up as they're like, what are you doing up there? Point your hand up towards them, even though you're trembling, and say, I'm with him. I mean, that's a bad time to choose to do that. How about once the cross is emptied, you know, the hill is cleared off and everyone goes their own way, then you walk up and go, I'm with him. You see, you could still do it symbolically, right? You don't need to do it right then. But my sister asks those kinds of questions. It's like, ah... Boy, everything in me wants to be able to do that. I love Jesus. But there is so much resistance in us to stand out in that level of intensity, in that theater of social pressure and correctness, to step up and declare who you are with. Whew. The all-important refusal, saying no to the cool. Hebrews eleven twenty four through 26. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused... There's our key word to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. That word for refused, epernaomai, to deny, to refuse, to disregard, to reject, forgo. This is an action of our soul. We have to epernaomai. We have to refuse the riches of this world. We have to choose Jesus. We have to choose the scandalon as another word in the Greek for scandal. We have to choose to wear him. Hebrews eleven twenty four through 26. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused. Now look at what we have. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. You have to be convinced that the treasures of the kingdom of heaven are greater 
than all that you're giving up here. You are making a very, if you want to say it, rational choice. The word in the Greek is logikos, reasonable. So it's a reasonable form of worship. Paul's saying, hey, make your bodies a living sacrifice, right? This is your reasonable act of service to give up everything. It's reasonable, logical. Because if you put it all together, your creator has come and given up his life for you. And he has come and given you his Holy Spirit so that you can be redeemed, sanctified, and brought home. But in the meantime, to stand for his glory. This is the creator that is asking you to do it. It's only logical that you would do it. This is greater riches, and you need to make that decision in your soul. You must refuse something. Will it be Jesus, or will it be self? Peter said to him, even if I had to die with you, I will not aperneo my you. So said all the disciples, and Peter remembered the words of Jesus who had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. You see, without the power of the Holy Spirit, you cannot perform this life that we are talking about. You cannot walk up in front of the the screaming crowd and stick your hand up in the air. It sounds noble on paper, but it's impossible in actuality unless you have something from above deposited inside of you. But you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. I think all of us could probably acknowledge that that's exactly what we have done in our lives. We have aperneomide Jesus instead of aperneomide the riches of Egypt. We have been like Peter. And we must, like Peter, repent, humble ourselves, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. This man is going to die upside down. He is going to turn into one of the greatest superheroes that, the, that Christianity has ever known. Same man that was a coward, is going to turn into uh, one of the, a, a bold and courageous lion. Luke nine twenty three through 24, and he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him aperneomai himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. The dying, it's more than just a refusal of riches, it's a very real death. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall find it. That's Luke 9, 24. And then Luke 14, 27. Whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's time to make a decision. The fear of man can no longer rule the church of Jesus Christ. Father, prepare us to respond to this. Don't let us sneak away, Lord. May your spirit hold us and bring ratification to this. Where do we stand? Are we with you or are we with this world? Because if we're with you, we need to accept the terms. Lord, it's in your name that we ask this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. 
We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.